Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're celebrating Latinx Heritage Month with some favorite Scholastic authors, including Sonia Manzano. You may know Sonia as Sesame Street's beloved Maria, a role she played for more than 30 years. Here she is, reading from her memoir, Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. It was first published in 2015. Aurea and I are alone, and my father comes home wildly drunk. Isa! he screams. My mother is not here to answer him because she's not home. He doesn't notice us, doesn't ask Aurea where my mother might be, though she is old enough to answer. After my father runs and peeks into all four rooms, plus the kitchen, it finally dawns on him that she is not home. He comes back into the living room and looks about ferociously. Does he think Ma is hiding under the sofa? Or behind the picture of Jesus Christ on the wall? Maybe she's curled up in the ashtray. I think Aurea has gone to hide. When he finally understands that his target is not home, he picks up the coffee table and sends it flying through the air. I watch it smack into the wall and splinter. Then he picks up a lamp and sends it flying into the door of their bedroom, and I watch the light bulb shatter like my feelings, even though I'm not sure what I'm feeling, except I'm beyond scared and turn into a one-note, catatonic, unbroken scream. My father stops and looks around, wondering where that high-pitched squeal is coming from, and notices me stuck in my spot, the top of my head just reaching his knees. His red eyes refocus like a robot villain's. Who is this kid, he seems to think, and how did she get here? Growing up in a tumultuous household in the 1950s, Sonia wondered, how she could contribute to a society that didn't see her. There are no such things as brown people, she heard her teacher say. She felt invisible. I'll ask Sonia how she thinks books like hers can help young readers from all backgrounds see themselves and the possibilities before them. I'll also talk with Pam Munoz Ryan, the author of Esperanza Rising, and several other acclaimed novels. We'll discuss her latest book, a novel for middle graders called Manana Land. Then, author Justin A. Reynolds and illustrator Pablo Leon will join me to talk about their Spider-Man graphic novel featuring everyone's favorite hero, Miles Morales. First, here is Sonia Manzano. Hi, Sonia. Welcome back to the program. Well, it's my pleasure to be back. Thank you. We first had you on the podcast in 2016. Your beautiful memoir, Becoming Maria, had just been published. Tell us a little bit about the book and how it came to be. Wow, how it came to be. Well, I think that once I left 
I retired from Sesame Street. I was interested in examining my past and figuring out how I got to where I did when there were so many other paths I could have taken and maybe dangerous places I could have gone. And I was curious in examining how I ended up where I did. And the best way to do that was to document it and write things down. And I started writing my journey so I could figure out how I got to where I did. When you were growing up, of course, there weren't many role models in the larger world for you, if at all, but especially on television. Your own teacher didn't even acknowledge that there were brown people in the world. How did that shape your perception of yourself and your own family? Well, you're quite right. When I was growing up, there were no role models and there was nobody on television who looked like me or lived in a place that was like mine. And I did feel invisible and it was worrisome. And I didn't know what I was going to contribute to a society that was not interested in seeing me. When people asked me, what are you going to be when you grew up? You didn't know what to answer because you never saw anybody like you being anything. So that was a worrisome thing. Yet, I always loved television. I, I just would go watch television, Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver, all of those shows of the 50s. And I wondered where those people were and how they got there and, and what, what they were doing. So Uh, So in a way, I ended up on Sesame Street, I think, to become what I needed to see myself when I was growing up. I became my own role model. And I was always mindful of that on Sesame Street. And and that's why I think I was successful as Maria. I always assumed there was some kid out there watching me on television the way that I watched television. And I was going to assuage any fears or discomfort they felt if they felt invisible. You had quite a role on Sesame Street, not just as Maria, but also as a writer and contributing to the cultural content. How did, tell us a little bit about that back and forth and how you delved into that. Well, I first got on the show coming right off of a Broadway, off-Broadway hit show, Godspell. And my training had been really in theater at Carnegie Mellon University, and I had never been inside a television studio. So I was really nervous when I got cast and I had to talk to Big Bird and and the cameras were behind me and directors were behind me. I was used to people, the audience being in front of me at some distance. Now they were all, cameras were all in my face. And to complicate things, Matt Robinson, the original Gordon, came up to me and said, You're not here to be the cute little Latina, you know. You have to make sure all of the Latino content is accurate. And I and I said, what? Me? Who elected me mayor of Puerto Ricans? I don't even know how to talk to Big Bird, for heaven's sakes. But I remembered (laughs) what he said. And then I noticed that there was a fruit cart on Sesame Street and the fruit cart had apples, bananas and the usual things that you find on a fruit cart. And I thought to myself. If this was a really a diverse neighborhood, there would be platanos y yautillas and yucas and, and kind of Caribbean food in the fruit cart. So I nervously went up to the producers and I said, how about uh, 
putting some of those traditional Caribbean foods in the fruit cart. And they said, oh, sure, great idea, no problem. And so I think that I, I'm proud that I diversified the first fruit cart on television. And <laughs> I always use that story as an example to show kids that everybody has a little bit of power. I mean, that was a little bit of power that I had. It wasn't big, but it was something that I saw power that I could use and I did accordingly. And then I went on to obviously impact more when you become a writer. That's when, that's where the power lies. I figured that out very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and then you metamorphosed into this award-winning novelist, memoirist, and picture book writer. It's really remarkable to me. I was so new to writing. I started writing because I knew the characters of Sesame Street. I knew Oscar and I knew Big Bird and I knew what they would do. And it was easy for me to put them in situations because the characters were strongly drawn and I had a curriculum goal book and I could follow along. And they encouraged me to write and, and there I was. Now to take the, that leap from writing for these known characters and, and writing on your own was, was huge. I needed like a tutorial to write a thank you note when I started writing. I am proof that if you keep trying and you don't mind rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, you will get better. You, there's <laughs> no way you're not going to get better. I mean, you, know, you may not be Hemingway, but you will get better if you continue to write. So, so that's how I started. And I started writing the memoir because I read, well, actually I wrote a, a picture book because I was inspired by Frank McCourt's memoir, Angela's Ashes. Ashes, right. It was the, as you know, the most miserable Irish childhood <laughs> you could imagine. But he wrote with such compassion and humor that I thought I have I had a miserable childhood. I could be funny. Maybe I could do this as well. And so I, I did. I, I wrote a No Dogs Allowed, but it was a picture book, but it was based on a real experience that I transformed into a cheerful experience. And, and I think that's really where it started. I'm thinking of Puerca Bisca, the character you created in Becoming Maria. Is that her name? Oh, uh, oh, yes, yes. But I, that was a real person. <laughs> yes, that was, uh, 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 that was a real person. It was, uh, that's right. I forgot about that, that character. Yeah. And uh, she, that, that was a, a, a strange family, but it was, it, you know, it was a rich neighborhood with eccentric people and, and, and everybody knew each other's business and everybody knew when uh, La Puerca Vizca burned the beans, you know, kids would run up the stairs saying, she's burned the beans again. She's burned the beans again. <laughs> and it's so very much like there was a moment in Frank McCourt's book where a woman, the whole neighborhood knows she's just about to commit herself to the, to the authorities because she was mentally ill. When she baked incessantly, baked bread for her children to eat while she was probably going to be in, in the mental institution for a while. And it was like the whole neighborhood knew it. And it was just like La Puelca Vizca would do weird things. And we all knew about it. 
That is so funny. And you lived upstairs above the bodega. So of course, that was a great center of community activity and everybody yes. knew who paid the bills and who didn't. And who didn't and who was. And, and then I, I had the bodega below me and the Third Avenue elevator train going right by my house. And it was exciting. I, to this day, I love, I, you know, I like to take the train. And uh, it's very much like living in front of a river. Because it, it flows all the time, but it goes, it moves, and it's always there. People came on, and they got off, and, you know, there was quiet, and then it would come rumbling into the station again. And, and then, so that was across from me. And then below was the bodega, people going in and out. And then uh, two steps away from that was the television set. It was a perfect life. <laughs> <laughs> well, many, many, many people got off of that train, but most notably your mom after work and seeing her, yes, the vision yeah. of her. Tell us about your relationship with her growing up and the magic she brought to your life. Well, she was obviously a complex woman. She was so strong, uh, though allowed herself to live in a, a household ruled by domestic violence. But she was so strong and she would come at, and get off the train. She worked on Tremont Avenue and she'd get, get off the train and I'd wait for her and she'd look at me with such joy. And I knew I was the most beloved child in the world. And then I'd watch her walk to the end of the station in her little 50s outfit, you know, like uh, the fabulous Mrs. Maisel dress. And uh, and then come uh, with, you know, those tight fitting 50s outfits. And then you know, she'd come home. And sadly, I would only have her for a second because then she would start her chores of cooking and doing the rest of the stuff. But I, I cherish those moments. And I'm grateful that a teacher once said to me that my mother should read books to me. This is how I got to know my mother more. And I went and I said, Mom, Mr. Gitterman says you should read books to me. Here's my overwhelmed mother answering. She says, <laughs> what? Don't I got enough to do? I said, oh, I, tell him we don't have any books. And I, uh, well, yeah, I told Mr. Gitterman, we don't have any books. And he said, she can just tell you stories of her life. And then I learned a lot about my mother. She told me uh, how she was an orphan and how, you know, she would bravely cross the bullpen to get to see her siblings and um, how she had to take care of children when she was like an indentured servant. You know, this was in the, during the depression in Puerto Rico. And if the depression was bad here, you could imagine what it was on the Caribbean islands. So all of a sudden, because of these stories, she told me, she, I saw her in a different light. Uh, I, I, I saw her as brave and courageous and, uh, and ab above all mothers. Plus, she had a beautiful voice, which made her special as well. <laughs> she just seems like the bomb. <laughs> how, <laughs> how did she get to America? I, I hadn't wondered that before, but I'm just curious. Well, I think the usual way, her older, there were five orphans. And uh, so her oldest brother, Eduardo Rivera, came first. And this was at a time when... After World War II, there was a boom in America and they needed workers and, they, and, and factory owners would go to Puerto Rico and give them flyers, you know, give out flyers and say, come to the United States. We have jobs for you. And uh, they, of course, wanted to escape this grinding poverty. So the, there's always a scout that goes first. My uncle came first and uh, 
you know, and then kept in touch with her. And then it was her time to go when there was kind of looking for a better way to live like everyone else comes to the mainland. I mean, right, we're, Puerto Ricans are always yes. U.S. citizens, yes. but uh, coming to the mainland. And so and then she was she would tell me that she she came in one of the um, World War Two paratrooper planes and there were no seats. There were like people would bring their beach chairs and sit facing each other on both sides of the plane. And it was like $20 to come. And there were sometimes there were these uh, retired army guys who had these planes somehow. And she tells the story, and I think I wrote it in, in Becoming Maria, where she was sitting opposite a man who was a barber. And he brought all of his tools to make his way in the new America, in the new world, with him in a box. And he said every time the plane lurched, his box of tools of scissors and clippers and hairbrushes and lotions would go skittering <laughs> down the plane and everybody would try to help him uh, gather the, ma- the material. And, <laughs> and then the plane would lurch again and its stuff would spill out. And mom would tell me these stories. And I think I got my sense of humor from her because I would just howl laughing. And she knew when to really like, milk a joke and, and, and make it longer. <laughs> and, you know, and I would tell her she, she had a repertoire of those stories, but that's how, that's how she got here. Gosh, that's wonderful, Sonia. Uh, getting back to you on Sesame Street and your viewers growing up and looking up to you, I wondered if you've heard from them and other young readers what they think about becoming Maria or what resonates the most with them. I am still hearing wonderful things by from my fans. You know, my fans are like 40 years old now. So that's how long ago they were on the show. They're grown people. They asked me to go out for a martini. You know, <laughs> they uh, are obviously always touched and moved. And I think it's because I was the first person who's, who seemed like them or was from their world that they could relate to. As we celebrate Latinx Heritage Month, what message would you give to our listeners who may be wondering how they fit in now in today's world? You know, it's interesting to me. I love when I uh, am praised for being the first. Everybody likes to be the first. That's why we watch the Olympics and that's why we keep score. It's the first and the most. But I heard Michelle Obama's mother, Mrs. Robinson, say this. When somebody complimented her on her children, they said to her, Mrs. Robinson, you must be so proud of your children. And she said, yes, I am. But there were lots of kids like them in the south side of Chicago. And it really struck me because I realized that this whole notion of being the first implies that you're the first with the capability. And the fact is, there were probably others with the same capability. There were probably other, uh, you know, the first baseball player, the first that implies that you were the one, only one that was good enough. And I say to that, you know what? There's lots of us that are good enough. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I would say to people that are trying to write or get into show business is, is that you have it and you just don't have the opportunity or the, the, the support. But it's not about not being capable or able. And I'm hoping that reading books like Becoming Maria will help them see that there's a way for everyone 
to become yes. someone. Yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to add before I let you go? Well, sure. I hope that everybody anxiously awaits my next book with Scholastic, which which will uh, be released in, I believe, spring of 22. And it's called Coming Up Cuban. And of course, I'm not Cuban, but I am uh, I am I was interested in what happened to children after Castro uh, changed Cuba. And I have my same wonderful editor that I had on Becoming Maria, Andrea Pinkney, uh, who has read every single version of this book <laughs> for four years. And uh, we're happy uh, that it's going to be released. And we're happy, you know, obviously we want everybody to read it. And I have to plug my uh, new animated series on PBS, which will debut October 4th. 2021, just coming around the corner in time for this particular celebration of uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. It's called Alma's Way. Tune in. Oh, my gosh, Tonya. That's wonderful. Well, I am going to very much look forward to getting my hands on the book when there's an (laughs) advanced reader's copy. And you and Andrea Pinckney will have to come back on next spring. How's that? Absolutely. Per sounds perfect. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much. So great to see you today. Now, here is renowned author and storyteller Pam Yunos Ryan to talk about her latest novel, Menana Land. The mythical tale introduces young readers to a boy named Max who learns what it means to help people fleeing danger and persecution. Hi, Pam. Welcome back to the program. Hello. Nice to be here. Yay. (laughs) Yay. I'm delighted you're here. First, could you tell our listeners about Manana Land, your latest novel, and what inspired it? Many years ago, I wrote a story for an anthology, and the anthology was uh, stories about teen immigrants. And my story was called First Crossing, and it was about a young boy who crossed the border for the first time with his father, who was more accustomed to crossing the the border, but they were exploited by coyotes, and it was a journey very fraught with danger, exploitation. And I always wanted to tell the other side of that story, because we hear so much about the exploitation of immigrants when they're trying to cross borders. And so I sort of put that in my mind on the back burner, thinking, wow, someday I would like to write the other side of that story about people who help uh, immigrants and were more like guardians. And then um, years passed, and I had done a book with Peter Cease called The Dreamer. He illustrated that novel. And I was in New York and having tea with my editor and with Peter. And he just so happened to have a portfolio with him that was filled with sketches and drawings of bridges, of old stone arch bridges. And I was very intrigued with them. And we were actually getting together with the, on the premise that we might do a book together. But as so often happens in publishing, that sort of went by the wayside. But my impressions of all of these incredible stone arch bridges it, from his portfolio, from his sketchbook, just stayed with me. And I started loving the whole premise of bridges and as a metaphor of connecting 
one side to another or one person to another. Then that other idea of, you know, telling that different immigration story with guardians instead of coyotes um, sort of coalesced. And I began imagining a boy who, Maximiliano, who became the main character in the story and things move forward from there. (laughs) So Maximiliano lives with his father and his grandfather, Buelo. Each of them loves him very dearly, but they express their love differently. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, his father, as a parent, is very uh, protective, almost overprotective. Max, Max isn't really sure why, but as the traditional role of a parent versus a grandparent, his father is very caught up in the shoulds and the rules of how he should live his life. And also, his father has a history that Max doesn't know about, and his father has a knowledge of the history that Max doesn't know about. So, And of course, the grandfather is much more of a dreamer, much more philosophical, also seems to be much more sensitive to Matt's situation in the family and tries to temper the relationship between the father and the son, although he, he does it in a very tactful way. He's, right. he, he, you know, the grandfather knows that the father makes the rules in this situation. Max is living without his mother. There's a huge void. And Buelo, the grandfather, seems better able to fill in that love and that void. It's true. I mean, Buelo is sort of the man of the house, uh, but also sort of the mother of the household. And he no longer, he, he, he works, but he no longer works to the degree that the father works. So that Buelo becomes that person in the home who takes on, you know, a very nurturing role, but also the community does as well. And the town in which they live, Santa Maria, it's at once familiar and and far away. I wondered, was that a familiar place to you in your mind? Or did you do a lot of research to flesh out the setting? Initially going in, I did not have the setting. I had the characters. They were far more grounded for me. And I went looking for a setting and I went looking for hill towns that were in, um, in a, a Latin American country. I will look for hill towns near a river that might have had uh, in an area that might have had ruins or stone arch bridges. And so I did those types of searches and I came up with um, several places in, in Mexico, San Sebastian de Hueste, and several places in Puerto Rico and South America and California, Texas, in the hills of Texas, many places in Mexico. So what I came to realize as I was creating the setting was that is that the story could take place in any of those places. And so I was far more generic in my, in, in saying where exactly Santa Maria is located, because there is a town called Santa Maria in Puerto Rico, in California, in Mexico, in South, in many countries in South America. So I wanted it to be somewhere in the Americas. And I, because I wanted the readers to think that, that this town could be, could be far away, or it could be in their own backyard. 
despite the timelessness of this story, it has such an immediacy. I mean, it could be taken from the headlines in a way. It, that's the, 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 the part that I really wanted um, the reader to, that one of the points that I wanted the reader to take away from the story is that this story of people being repressed in danger, in fear for their lives, is an age-old story. That it happened, it has happened you know, hundreds of years ago, decades ago, it's happening today. And it will continue to happen tomorrow to some, to many degrees, some degrees. So I, I wanted that timelessness to be apparent to the reader. I wanted them to understand that this is an old and a new and a current story. And what do you want your readers, what do you hope they'll take away from Manana Land? Well, I, I mean, there's a degree of hopefulness that I want them to take away and I think that when, and through the story, it becomes a revelation to Max because he, in his mind, in his child's mind, or his young adult's mind, he thinks that Manana land is a tangible place. And I think that he's, you know, obviously he is misunderstood, but it has become a tangible place to him in his heart. And then, of course, I think what he has discovered is that Manana land isn't a place per se, but it's a, more of a state of mind. And Manana Land is where things are better than they were before. And so I wanted to bring that degree of hopefulness to the reader. And as a writer, I'm, it's important not to always wrap up all the loose ends because hopefully I have given my characters the tools with which to put one foot in front of the other. And that was really my goal in Manana Land, to give Max the tools to carry on and that then hopefully all the pieces of his life would come together enough for him to live fully. What are you working on now? What have you been working on during the pandemic? I'm really interested. In 2020, my book, Esperanza Rising, celebrated its 20th anniversary in print. So that was really special. And one of the things that happened that year was that I wrote the script for the graphic novel of Esperanza Rising for Scholastic. So uh, the graphic novel of Esperanza Rising will publish next year, being illustrated right now. I'm, I'm very excited about it. I'm excited because I think it'll bring Esperanza Rising to an entirely different readership and in a very visual way. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that publishing. And it was very different for me to, to write the script for the graphic novel. I had never done that before. And so it made me kind of look at the book in a completely different, different way in a different format. But I'm thrilled that it's moving forward. Oh, that's wonderful news. My goodness. Well, congratulations on all of this extraordinary work. I'm so happy that we were able to talk today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, author Justin A. Reynolds and illustrator Pablo Leon join me to talk about their new Spider-Man graphic novel, Miles Morales, Shockwaves. Hi, Justin and Pablo. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you Thank for you. having Thank us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's 
I have a bunch of questions for you. I'm going to jump in here with Justin. Please tell us about the character of Miles Morales, who will be very familiar to Marvel fans. Yeah, so so Miles Morales, uh, in a lot of ways, is kind of your your, your typical adolescent teen uh, who's trying to figure out his own identity and trying to figure out how he fits in at school. Also, his responsibility as a son to his parents and all the things that we kind of grapple with, even as we're older. The difference is that he has the additional responsibility of saving the world from time to time. So that's that makes things a little bit more complicated. <laughs> uh, and what's cool about Spider-Man and particularly Miles Morales is that we've always heard uh, even like the uh, the previous iterations of Spider-Man say that there are the neighbor uh, friendly neighborhood spider. And that's what's pretty cool about Spider-Man is that Spider-Man isn't just a kind of a global figure who's only saving the world, but he's really stationed in a neighborhood, in a community. And that's so important to Miles, not only culturally, but also uh, just, just kind of the, the, the vibe that he has there in Brooklyn and, and it kind of being the neighborhood that raises him. That's, that's Miles Morales. How did you and Pablo work together to create this stunning graphic novel? It was definitely uh, an awesome collaboration. In the beginning, we didn't know each other, so we weren't sure exactly how it was going to work. Of course, we both have work already out in the world that we can look at and say, okay, obviously this person is talented. At least that's what I said about Pablo. I can't, I can't speak for Pablo. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, uh, I knew that he was talented, but you never know until you kind of start working together, you know, how your points of view align. And it was pretty clear, though, once I saw the first few panels that Pablo did, that his vision was not only perfect for the story that I was trying to tell, that we were trying to tell, but then challenged me to be even better at my craft. So I would write kind of the script out, including the dialogue and kind of what um, is taking place in every scene and any kind of key factors that, that need to be visible in the panel. And then Pablo would would, would take it and, and run with it and not only, like I said, execute it, but, but take it to the next level. So you're in different states, right? You're in Ohio, Justin, Pablo, you're in California. You would work via email or how did that go? We're all in different states. I mean, our editors are in New York. Yeah, like I said, I'm in, I'm in California. I was given an, an initial description of the characters, uh, of every character, including the new ones. And uh, just like a, a a small blip of of what the story was going to be, and like I, I mean, I was already on board. It, it's Spider Man, <laughs> of course. Especially it's Miles Morales. Yeah, I was I was I was just playing hard to get at first. I was like, oh yeah, I'll, you know. But really, <laughs> I I was on board. I love the the outline that you know, Justin uh, wrote in the beginning, and I was like, oh, I was, I'm I'm in. Now, Pablo, in addition to being a superhero. Miles is also an artist like mm-hmm. you. How did you incorporate his vision into your own when you were illustrating the story? It's funny because like, I, I thought it was super relatable that he's having a lot of trouble, like not only just trying to like find, find a vision for his, for his artwork during the story. And then he meets someone who's like completely way better, just blowing him out of the water. Uh, and you know he's he's just going through this art block, and it's like, yeah, you know what? I go through this every three months. This this is this is very much relatable to me. I 
did my best to incorporate that feeling of, I don't want to say the torture artist because it's not really a torture artist. It's more like the, uh, just the burnout that we go, go through as, as artists, as illustrators. So. Tell us about bringing Kyle to life. She is Miles's new classmate and a gifted artist. I had a lot of fun drawing her in gen, just, just as a whole, just putting it out there. I, I did a lot of um, revisions on it, but in general, I, I, I love the way that she came out in the end. And you know, she's, she's a very much like a whole, she's a very fulfilling character. I, I feel she's very fleshed out. And I think when it comes to her art, she's, I might, I might be talking uh, out of line on this one. I think with her art, uh, she doesn't really bring it out a lot. And it's just one of those cases where I feel like she was very much already really good to the point where she's not even struggling. And, you know, I've met people like that in my career. And it's always like a, a sense of both like a little bit of jealousy and amazement of how like uh, some people like like me, I, I, I'm struggling to run here. And somebody next to me is just like on their second and third lap in the marathon. So that was to me what Kyle felt like when it came to that particular plot with her art. Justin, could you talk about how you embraced Miles's cultural heritage, especially his mother's love? for her childhood home in Puerto Rico. When I'm approaching storytelling, I'm always looking for kind of the, the emotional resonance of a story, first and foremost. That's what matters to me. If you talk to any of my editors, they'll tell you that uh, I'm not extremely concerned with plot. <laughs> I'm more character-driven. I'm more interested in what people are going through internally than what we necessarily see with our eyes. And so... Um, it was important to kind of use this as an opportunity to, to dive into parts of a superhero uh, that we don't often see, but especially in this case, because Miles represents so many things to so many different people, especially people of color, kids of color, as a, a Black man uh, um, and as a, a Puerto Rican man. I think that it was awesome to to be able to kind of explore that heritage and what it means to him and how it informs his, his family dynamics and also just the relationship that he has with his own community and, and his sense of self. And, uh, and so the relationship that he has with his mom obviously also fuels the story a great deal because not only is she personally affected that uh, Puerto Rico was hit by these series of earthquakes, now Miles also has these personal stakes and that he wants, of course, to not only kind of make, his, make things right for his mom, but he's also deeply moved by what's happening to those people, to, to the resiliency. Despite the resiliency of those people, you know, earthquake after earthquake after earthquake has kind of leveled the area there, including um, parts that that Rio grew up in. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it was just kind of like a way to, a way in that came from the news um, at the time. There was a lot of talk about the earthquakes that were happening over in Puerto Rico, and we were seeing a lot of images. And I kind of thought. What would, what would, how would this impact Miles? What would his mom think? Uh, what would she be feeling? And how would that uh, affect the way that Miles went about his other business? How would that inform those choices? Miles has a few troubled times along the way. He doesn't always see through his obligations and in his family life. Could you talk about how he juggles everything with his superpowers, his artistry, school, 
and home? Yeah, I I think what's fascinating to me, so Spider-Man has always been my favorite character, even prior to this, and even prior to Miles Morales, who incidentally, it's hard to believe he's been, he's now been in in this universe for for 10 years now, a decade this this year. But prior to that, Peter Parker, Spider-Man was kind of my go-to superhero. And what I found appealing about him was that he felt the most kind of human, but who also had these superpowers. He still had family responsibilities to juggle. Uh, oftentimes he had, he let down his family, right? And, and as he tried to protect them in this other way, protect the community, uh, protect the world at large. And so there's certain sacrifices that come when you choose to be this kind of public service figure. And so I think with Miles, it's interesting because he has all those same kind of things to wrestle with and kind of a lot of balls to kind of keep in the air. But he is also just like a young person, right? And he just wants to have fun. And he's also insecure, right, about his art and about what he's trying to, to like say in the world and like who he is. And so he has this very concrete um, kind of alter ego that he has to go out every night and, you know, and do his thing. But he's also at the same time, this kid who is just kind of like, I, I'm dead tired in class and I'm trying to keep my attention and I'm trying to be there for my mom and dad. But like, it's hard. Most kids don't have superpowers, but when they're reading the story, what do you hope about Miles will inspire them? And, and what do you hope they take away from the story? For me, I think I just want them to feel seen. Obviously, most of us, at least uh, those who are, who are forthcoming enough, we don't, we don't have superpowers um, to speak of. None of the kind that, that these um, superheroes have. But I think the thing that I've kind of constantly said to, to young people as I've talked to them, especially about this book, is that the power is already within you. And your power um, is something that you're born with. It's, it's the voice that you have to kind of speak to this world and speak into existence the way that you wish to be identified and treated and kind of carving out this, 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 uh, this safe space for yourself and for your friends and for your family. And so I guess the, the thing I'm saying is never let anyone take your voice away from you, but also understand that the, the power that you truly have to say something and to affect change. Um, maybe you're not able to kind of have web slingers and, 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 and scale the city walls, but your voice can travel just as far. And, and we have so many like awesome examples of, of young people making great change or inspiring even some of the leaders or leaders to do awesome things. And what's cool, as I said before about Miles is that he's just doing this in his local community, right? A lot of this is just local community. So we don't necessarily have to be on like a global stage to make something awesome happen. It could be right in within one or two city blocks, right in our neighborhood, our neighbor across the street. We can do things that kind of have this ripple effect in the world and that make the world a little bit better for the next person. Thank you for a great conversation and a spectacular book. I know young readers will love this. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. My great thanks again to Sonia Manzano, Pam Yunos Ryan, Justin A. Reynolds, and Pablo Leon for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about the authors and the books we discussed, And for additional Latinx heritage resources, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Bridget Benjamin, associate producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, 
and music composer, Lucas Elliott Eberl. I am Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.